0: I am a big believer in consistency. I don't I don't want the first shop to do anything different than the second. I spend a lot of time right now cycling back and forth between both shops and trying the house espresso and I get really annoyed when it's different. I don't even really care about which one is better or if it's better here than there. I don't celebrate that anywhere near as much as when it tastes the same between both shops.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Coffee Made Me Do It podcast. My name is Dario Shiliporti, and I have the privilege of hosting this podcast as well as running my roastery, Bluebird Coffee Roastery, with an incredible team of people. We get to send coffee all over the world to some of the most enthusiastic coffee drinkers and cafe owners and today i have one of the most enthusiastic and successful that i know of marcus is the owner of sweet spot in munich um one shop turned to two shops recently we've been working with marcus for about two years now and i'm such a huge fan i'm so grateful for him to take the time to speak to me today and i hope you enjoy it so first of all thank you for joining me today i'm really really excited about this chat i think um if it wasn't for you and Jordan Montgomery specifically, I don't think I would have started the podcast when I did. It was after our chats in in Athens that really pushed me to get going. So thank you, <laughs> and um, I've been looking forward to to us having this conversation. Yeah, I hope uh, this doesn't mark the end of your
0: Sprogy Award ambitions for this podcast. But
1: well, I, I I unfortunately know for a fact that this podcast recording won't play any role in the Sprogy Awards because I think voting closes tomorrow. So, oh perfect yeah i can't not, mess not it perfect. up for you. not perfect i think oh, you would have so sealed much, so the deal much stress
0: off my shoulders right now <laughs> so much stress off my, off my shoulders
1: i can't believe we've been nominated to be honest with you it's pretty pretty surreal i didn't think they even knew who we were so that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> What do you mean
0: you 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 listen to in 32 countries you said? You're a famous, man.
1: Yeah, man, I don't know. I don't know. It's still weird. We like we're so isolated out here. It's still I look at all the the list of countries that we have listeners in on the on the podcast and it's like is it even real? Is it just like some uh, bot network somewhere listening to us and giving us some some listens? But no, the feedback we've been getting and especially after the Sprudgy nomination has been amazing. So many um jeepers so many big names in the industry to be honest with you have been sending me dms and just saying you know they're actually really enjoying it and um yeah we've got some cool guests lined up for the rest of the year so feeling good feeling positive
0: yeah it's an honor to be here man like you've recorded episode with some legends you know and now i'm here telling you about making coffee in munich you know (laughs) It's crazy. You had like Alejo Castro, Pepe Kikon, all these legends on your podcast.
1: Well, I think that you belong on the list. Um, The work you're doing there is absolutely incredible and I'm definitely not the only person who feels that way. Um, the big names in the industry like Scott Rao, who speaks so highly of Sweet Spots and the work that you're doing in Munich. Um, oh, I think um, it's just testament to, to yeah, the day-to-day grind that is running a cafe, but doing it with such intention and attention to detail. You're obviously doing something right.
0: Oh, Thank you so much.
1: So I think a really great starting point would actually be to chat about what you were doing before coffee. Because I know that Sweet Spots is a relatively new project for you and you had a, you had a whole life and career before delving into the world of specialty, specialty coffee what were you up to what is your background
0: yeah i got into coffee two lives ago actually um, i got into coffee in 2009 when i was a german teacher in london um, i originally studied to be a teacher and the last year of that program meant you had to be actually be a teacher for a year and i um, did that in london as a german teacher And I wasn't too busy because I was just an assistant teacher. So I had like three and a half days of school a week. And I was looking for things to do during the day because you can't go to pubs all the time. (laughs) And that's how I got into coffee because they had like five or six specialty coffee shops back then, which is crazy to think now, London being what it is today. But 2009, there were like five or six specialty shops. It was like um, New Espresso, Flat White, Monmouth, Proofrog, I think was already open. I'm not even sure. But that was pretty much it. And I walked into Nudis Press and just really got into it. They served me a really nice flat white and I was hooked. That's how I got into coffee, uh, It's 2009. And then, I don't know, I came back to Munich and figured I'm going to find a local coffee scene, but it didn't exist back then. Um, so I figured, hey, I should do it. But I don't know, I ended up being rational and, getting a proper job instead um, and ended up working for an advertising agency for six years as a chief editor.
1: is Okay. And then that, that takes us up into when about 2019.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. And that's when the idea for Sweet Spot was born.
0: Well, to be honest, the idea was always there ever since London. I kind of, I had, I have the spreadsheet, my business plan spreadsheet actually the first save of that file is from 2009. Because I kind of started crunching some numbers and thinking like, how much coffee do you have to make in a day to actually make this a viable business? I started thinking about that stuff back, back then in very rudimentary terms. But you have to think like in 2009, there was no James Hoffman YouTube channel. There was no like Colin Harmon books about running coffee shops and all that. It just didn't
1: exist, you know? Absolutely. There was, there was no anaerobic processing. There was no. so little information out there for consumers to to get their hands on.
0: But there were banging Ethiopian naturals. That was that was fantastic back then. Just blueberry and,
1: bombs. And uh bright Kenyans. Yes. Yes, <laughs> good times. Good times, good times. Um okay, that's incredible. So so 2019 rolls around, uh early 2020, and you decide to give up the ad agency and, and move into the world of entrepreneurship and specialty coffee. Yeah, seriously
0: started thinking about it uh, when I turned 30 in 2016. I started seriously thinking about it because I figured, I don't know, 30 just has such symbolic power in a way. And you start thinking, what do I actually want to do um, now? Because you stop messing around a little bit when you turn 30. At least part of you wants to stop messing around a little bit. And then I figured, if I'm going to do one thing that's possibly stupid, I better do it soon. Um, <laughs> I didn't have kids, I didn't have a mortgage to pay off or a car payments or anything. I just, I don't know, I was sitting pretty and thought if I'm going to really run something against the wall, then better do it now than in 10 years. And so, I don't know, I I quit my job at the ad agency, started working in different coffee shops that had opened in the meantime. There was like a small specialty scene at that point here in Munich. I, I asked them if I can help out and they naively said yes and let me make coffee on the weekends every now and then. And then one of them opened a second shop in 2018. And I took the plunge and worked full time um, for Paul, was his name. And yeah, just to test if it's actually what I think it is and if it's actually fun. I wanted to test myself. I didn't want to be this um, advertising agency, Yuppie, who gets into opening a cafe um, because he thinks it's such a chill life and then realizes it's actually hard work. So I figured I'd do the hard work for a year before actually seriously doing it. And yeah, um, I still had fun and I still re-pulled shots Sunday night at 6.30 just before close because they didn't look the way I liked them to. And I still, I don't know, enjoyed the process, enjoyed talking to people about coffee and enjoyed making the best of it every day. That's and so interesting. It, this is something I should be doing.
1: I definitely want to come back to that point, but I've got a question for you. Out of curiosity, had you read Colin Harmon's book at that point about well, um, I about running coffee shops?
0: I had read it during that year when I was okay. working in that cafe. Um, I saw that it came out, and it also looked very nice. Orange is my favorite color, and I saw that orange book, and I thought, okay, brilliant, I'm getting that, and it's a really good book. Uh, really, like, honestly, the kind of the the actual value in there in terms of rules and numbers and things and actionable. Um, like facts is not that thick is not that much but the kind of the attitude and the kind of baseline approach to what to look out for and what to think about when uh, thinking about opening a cafe is just spot on and really resonated with me and it made me really think about a lot of things that i wouldn't have otherwise thought about probably
1: i completely agree i think the reason I asked you was because you you actually left your job to go and work in cafes first. And I think that is literally the first piece of advice that he gives to people thinking of opening a coffee shop is you've got a romance. You probably have a romanticized idea of what it would actually be like to run it. And you need to get out there and go and work in someone else's shop first, you know?
0: Yeah. And I get that. Like back then when I started telling people who already worked in coffee that I want to quit my well-paid comfortable job to work in a cafe, everybody thought I was really being daft. And now I see why, and now when people tell me they want to open a coffee shop, I also kind of, like, I don't warn them, I don't advise them against doing it, but I tell them, hey, make sure you know what you're getting into, because as a customer or as a guest, you see the cafe in a very different light. You, you chill there, you have good coffee, you chat with the owners or the baristas or other people, and you think this is what the work's going to be, but... It's very hard work to make it look easy like that, you know, and to make it a comfortable space like that. So what goes on behind the scenes and all the dishes that need washing, uh, people underestimate, I think.
1: I completely agree. I think a, a friend of mine who's opened a cafe in Mauritius recently said it so well. He sent me a message after their first six weeks or so of trading and he said it's going better than they expected, but he didn't quite anticipate how it never switches off. It, like There is no such thing as downtime if you're actively working in the business. It's a real-time business and that's what a lot of people underestimate. Like If you, if you call
0: into the office sick, no no client will probably even notice because you can answer a few important emails from home. You can take a few calls or whatever. And then like there's, there's such an easy way to kind of pretend you're still there, you know. <laughs> or even if you get back to an email a day later, most, most clients or customers or colleagues aren't probably even going to notice. So it's so easy to call in sick when you work an office job. But when you have the opening shift at 7.30 tomorrow morning and you're sick, Someone has to go open that cafe, you know, otherwise it's going to be closed and customers are going to stand in front of closed doors and they're not going to come back the next day. So it's such a real time business and it just never stops. It's just relentless, especially when it gets busy. Like I opened the shop in uh, September 2019 and it was, to be honest, like truth be told, it was only half finished. But I got impatient and I just decided to open and finish the things that need needed to be finished as I go. And some of those things are still not finished today because as soon as the shop's open, it just doesn't close anymore. You know, it's just, it makes coffee 10 hours a day. And when are you going to do those things? Like when are you going to paint that piece of drywall in the back that no one ever sees? It's just not gonna. So there's an unpainted piece of drywall in the back of sweet spot <laughs> still to this day. Four and a half years later, it's green. It looks ugly, but it's there and kind of reminds me <laughs> And it made me do things differently with the second one.
1: That's incredible. I can completely, completely relate. And I think as a, as an owner, you walk around and you see all the unfinished bits and pieces where so many mm. people wouldn't even notice them. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to even begin listing the things that we still need to do in our building. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, slowly but surely making progress. And um, yeah, so I, I remember having a conversation at the, I think it was at the Loring Street party after mm. World of Coffee in Athens. And you said to me a few interesting things. The first one was you said you opened your cafe just got going and obviously then covid hit and you had all the Mm -hmm. spreadsheets ready you you were you had a business plan but covid wasn't a part of it no i had no pandemic scenario in my spreadsheet like colin Harmon didn't tell me to do that yeah
0: who does (laughs) yeah i didn't see it coming like but but in a way like today i have very mixed feelings about the whole thing to be honest um i look back I'm, i'm glad it gives me stories to tell and it made me better at running a cafe to be honest Because I was very OCD. I spent months and years perfecting that business plan. Like I told you, that spreadsheet file technically started 10 years before I even opened the shop, right? So the way I I did it, I I didn't study business or anything. I just did it with what seemed sensible to me. So what I did is I took home the the till close-up from the cafes I worked at. And I saw, okay, today that cafe sold 97 cappuccinos, 42 flat whites, 32 espressos and whatever. And I put all that into spreadsheets and created like an average model of what a busy or not busy or semi busy or sixty six percent busy day looks like in a cafe. And so I I modeled um, <laughs> kind of the revenue and the material, the cost of goods sold and everything, and the staff cost of my cafe in a spreadsheet perfectly. And it was actually scary because when I opened. The first few weeks were like within 10% margin of what I had predicted it would be, right? So we made like 112 coffees and turned this sort of profit, and it worked out like I saw I thought it would, and I got so optimistic. And then I remember um, the shop was five months old and it was my birthday, and my then girlfriend, now wife, gave me like a, a spa weekend as a birthday gift, and I'd never done anything like that before. I'd never gone to a spa, I'd never. To me, honest, I like got one massage in my life. Like it's just not something I, I do really. And but I was so burnt out. I had um I had lost, I think, 12, 13 kilos of body weight just building the shop and, and opening it. And I was so tired that it sounded like a good idea. And all my staff then, all of three, I think at that point, told me, Yeah, we're gonna be fine for the weekend. You can go, like, please take it some time off, it's all good. And so went to that weekend, and I remember on the drive back, I heard on the radio um, that there's going to be a lockdown on Wednesday oh, because COVID being. had started, right? So there was just relaxed after five months of running a business, kind of getting a bit optimistic about the whole thing, thinking it might have not been a stupid idea to open a cafe after all. I might make this work somehow. Everything's going according to plan, and then, yeah, Wednesday's lockdown. And the crazy part is we had just received the most expensive coffee orders we had ever placed because especially retail was going a lot better than I had expected. And we had close to 10,000 euros worth of coffee on the shelves, and we had to close shop on Wednesday. And I was just, I didn't know what to do with it, right? And so what we did is we took um, orders via Instagram DMs and just everybody got on their bikes and we cycled out coffees all over Munich to people. And we put some pastries in the oven in the morning and delivered pastries with the bean orders to people. And it was chaos, but it was really fun. Um, I think we, we um, processed close to 150 orders in a week. And I had to write invoices in Microsoft Word because I didn't have a system for that because I only had the TIL, the POS system at the shop. I didn't have a system to write invoices. So I just winged it and wrote invoices. And it was such a mess that, I don't know, afterwards I sat at home, I couldn't reopen the shop, but I'd sold out of all the coffee and I thought, what do I do now? And that's when I thought about starting a web shop and a subscription.
1: That's incredible, and that that part of your business has carried over so beautifully since then. Yeah, um, and it seems to be a major revenue stream for you guys. Yeah, yeah. Now it is about a third of what we do in terms of business. Yeah, that's incredible, and we're very grateful because it means we get to ship you coffee for your subscription. Program. Yeah,
0: and we get to not just share your coffee with the people of Munich, but all over Germany and even some outside of Germany
1: in Europe. Absolutely, we've got a, a listener and a, a friend on on Instagram now who's in Poland um somebody contacted me i I think what happens as well is like a lot of people receive these coffees they get excited about them and they share them with their friends so the Mm. coffees have ended up all over the place and it's it's incredible to see that you know it's it's very exciting to see the thing you work so hard at uh, making people happy and i think yeah i mean it means a lot to us to be to be a part of that so thanks for having us on your rotation Oh, man. Um, I'm looking for, for good coffee. Like The whole idea
0: was um, to, to buy the best coffee I can buy. So what we do, I mean, most of the people are not even going to be familiar with what I do. So maybe in just two sentences. We are a small um, coffee shop in Munich um, now too. Uh, we just opened a second one
1: uh,
0: two months ago now. Um, I'm sitting at that second shop recording this podcast now because it's closed on Sunday and we feature three new coffees every week from just some of the world's best roasters. And some of them you will have seen before, like the kind of usual suspect big names, um, like Tim Wendelboe and Coffee Collective and all, all of those. Um, and some of them you may not have heard of, and some of them we kind of get in touch along the way. And you are one of those um, roasters that are kind of newer to the scene that we hadn't heard of before. But Paul Helmers from Minor Figures said, hey, you have to get these guys in. Um, they're just legends. And then you sent us a few bags, and that was two years ago, and we've been ordering ever since, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's been amazing. Paul Paul is such a legend. Um, he actually got given coffee. In fact, I don't think he actually received coffee from us, but um, Adrian Mancuso, from, he was with Minor Figures for a while, and now he's uh, with Cult's Coffee, I believe. Um he cupped our coffees on a cupping table at five senses in Australia. It was just the most bizarre story. And, um, he, I met him in Milan at, at the world barista champs at host. And he was like, oh man, I've, I've tasted your coffees and they were amazing. And I gave him a, I think I gave him a bag of some Kenyan coffee at the time. And, um, he just gave me such great feedback, put me in touch with Paul and yeah, Paul said, how can I help you? and I just said to him, Paul, we, we're trying to expand into Europe. And he's like, cool, I have two people you have to speak to. And <laughs> you were one of those two people, and it's turned into such a great friendship. So I'm super grateful for that. And yeah, it's amazing how one thing can lead to, a ne- to the next, you know, just heading yeah. off to Milan with no no plan other than to support my friend, steve at Warburys Champs, and here we are three or four years later. Um, it's really awesome. So you've got the two shops now. Um, how is the second shop going so far?
0: Oh, it's bonkers. Like I expected it to start solid but slow-ish and it's actually been kind of busy. Like um, yesterday was a record day at the second shop and we served, I think, 380 drinks here at the second shop, which is wow. like compared to the first one is not a lot. Um, the, the first one did a little more than twice that yesterday, but um, for a brand new shop that's only been open um, for... Two months—it's quite solid, and it's a more competitive area as well. Like first off, it's only five minutes walk from the first shop; it's very close. Uh, but also, there's a few other kind of good um, specialty shops very nearby. So it's people—people people have to make a more conscious choice to come here. But the location was so good, and it gave us space to grow the online operations as well in the back. So I couldn't say no to it. And uh, yeah, I'm
1: really happy—it's—it's
0: it's off to a good start so far.
1: It's very often the case that. You know, having a few specialty shops close to each other is not a bad thing. I remember reading yeah. an analogy in a in a book years ago where the author said, "You know, if you're worried about competition, consider bookshops. If you want to sell a yeah. book, you don't put it in a butchery; you put it in a bookshop right next to all exactly. your competitors." So I think that's. that's I not a I bad fully thing.
0: agree with that. When whenever like other people in the specialty uh, scene here in Munich get kind of anxious about new shops opening, it, I also tell them I don't think about other specialty shops as competition really. Um, I like the 5,000 shops making bad coffee. That's the competition that we have to steal business from, you know, exactly. It's not the, the seven other ones who do a good job as well. Like those are friends to be honest, those create an audience for us and we create an audience for them. Like we spread the word and it wouldn't be as busy here as it is if other shops in Munich didn't exist and did a good job as well.
1: Yeah. So well said. That's incredible. So coming out of COVID, you had your subscription service, web store, one shop, now a second shop. I mean, the numbers you guys are doing is, you know, they're pretty staggering to to me. Um, we've got very few wholesale partners who hit anywhere near the numbers you're doing out of one single shop. And I'm not sure oh. if that's completely common in Europe, but it, it sounds to me like you have a very loyal customer base.
0: I really underestimated the retail part of things to be honest. Um, but I, now I understand why I think, um, first Germany doesn't have as strong of a roasting scene as other countries do. I I would say there's good and really good German specialty roasters, but it's not as diverse and not as kind of non-compromising as say like Scandinavian countries, for instance. Um, so I think we really scratched an itch for a lot of people. Um, I scratched my own itch by opening the shop this way because I was one of those people just importing coffee from elsewhere um, to have at home. So I just figured if I'm going to open a coffee shop, I'm going to have those coffees that I would buy. But um, I remember my first, my very, very first order um, included all of 36 retail bags and six of them were a Kenyan coffee that cost like 19 euros retail. And I fully expected to take home a bag or two of that myself because I wouldn't be able to move it. And we sold it on the first afternoon in the first week when we opened. So, wow, I, I'm I'm really happy. And now we're doing. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Sometimes I'm really surprised when I look at the numbers myself. To be honest, I think we. Let me let me make sure I don't lie to you now. I have the spreadsheet open right now, anyways, because I'm ordering coffee on Sundays. Yeah, and uh, last year we did 6.2 tons of coffee and. That's for a small coffee shop uh, with six seats. That is quite the volume, I think. Um, I have no comparison from other shops, really, but I think that's quite a lot. It's like almost a small roastery. I,
1: I was going to say, I know of many micro roasteries doing less volume than that. So that is that is a staggering amount through one shop in a web store for the majority of that time. Mm. The second shop's only been open for two months. So yeah. it's really exciting. I think you know for people listening to this who are perhaps dreaming of opening a cafe or um i don't know they look they're looking at the coffee industry in a very sort of romanticized way we already spoke about the day-to-day running of it but another thing you shared with me in in athens was how in germany specifically it is not really advisable to move out of corporate and into into the world of entrepreneurship it's not really encouraged on a government government level um how, how does that work and what sort of caution should people take before like selling up the house and opening a specialty shop
0: yeah i'm not gonna advise anyone to do that really unless you have a really strong edge to do it um i think i'm not even sure it's like just government uh, it's also just cultural like there's a heavy stigma here on going broke on going bust on failing so if you start a business and it fails, it's really hard to get credit. It's re- We don't have, like, a real credit score like China does, but we have something very similar to that almost, like it's an official. But uh, when you, even if you want to rent a flat, they will ask for, like the equivalent of a credit score and if you went broke as an entrepreneur like you might not get that flat to be honest even as a successful like business owner now i had to send in like the results from the last two years for the flat we just moved into a few months ago and they were even kind of skeptical because like hmm, does your wife what does your wife do for a living what does she like ah oh, she's a teacher okay like they did even like making decent money now i couldn't just get a flat to rent and it's not a fancy flat it's just a two-bedroom flat for like three people, like a couple and a kid. And if I had gone broke with my coffee shop, I'm not sure it would have been easy to kind of get back up to my feet. It's really tough in Germany. The culture around failing businesses is really judgy and stigmatized and heavy and it's not highly encouraged to do your own thing. When I told friends and colleagues back then at the ad agency that I, I was thinking of quitting my job to pursue this, like... Everybody just kind of smirked, or kind of chuckled, or thought I was joking, or asked if I was serious. Like the kind of, there was not a lot of support, to be honest.
1: Wow, that's amazing. I've actually just read a book by one of my favorite podcasters, Michael Gervais. Um, He's a high performance psychologist and works with a lot of sports people and CEOs and so on. And he's written the first in what will be a series of books. Um, It's called uh finding mastery i believe i think that's the name of his of his podcast anyway and the first book is about a concept he calls fopo f-o-p-o fear of people's opinions and mm-hmm. the the number of i mean I, I was reading the book and the overwhelming thoughts i had the whole way through the book was how many amazing ideas were never acted on because of this yeah. this sort of phenomenon and how many how many amazing opportunities were passed over because people were just worried about what family and friends would think
0: yeah, and also if you ask people about regrets later in life, um, a lot of it is just people didn't follow their dreams, you know. Like the, the main one that you know is people want to spend more time with the people they love and want to focus less on work. But the other one is that they didn't follow their dreams, that they just didn't take risks. That's what people tend to regret when they're older.
1: So now you've started a cafe, you've taken a big risk and you want to stand out as you guys stand out dramatically in, in Munich and, to be honest with you, in the global scene, I'm connected to a lot of cafes in many countries and very, very few people have the focus on excellence and consistency that you have. First of all, what equipment are you working on and what steps do you think you're taking that other cafes and other uh, cafe owners aren't taking that stands makes you stand out in the, in the crowd, basically?
0: Okay. Before I get into equipment, I think um, I I want to. um, So my general approach is I have a problem with people thinking it's either or it's A or B. It's like either something is convenient and efficient, or it's like excellent and it's I I detest the phrase slow coffee, right? Like we we celebrate in the coffee culture. We say oh slow coffee. We have a slow coffee bar and all of that and. I don't think it should be slow for the sake of being slow. If making it slower makes it better, then yeah, sure, fair enough. And in some cases that that's the case. But just doing it slow for the kind of the ritual in the show, I um, um, don't subscribe to that really. And I think a lot of people fall into the trap of treating it like this dichotomy of either you do it fast or you do it well. And very, very few people do both. Um, and there's just a few coffee bars of benchmarks in that regard to me. Like I'm sure you've, you know, Rosalind in London. Yeah, they're like, I could sit in that shop for, I have sat in that shop for two hours and just watched how they work, you know, and just see. It's like a Formula One car, you know, lap after lap, it shaves off microseconds at every corner and every curve. And if you take that approach to making coffee, I think you can shave off a lot of time without compromising on quality at all. Um, If you just think about my left hand is doing this, my right hand is doing this, I'm going from here to there. How can I make that shorter, more efficient? How can I make sure something is happening while something else is happening and I'm not waiting on one part of the process before I can start the other part of the process? If you just approach it like that, um, I think you can shave out so much time and be so quick and efficient um, without compromising on quality. And I think a mistake people often make is mistaking efficiency for taking shortcuts. It's not the same thing. Being efficient is not the same thing as taking shortcuts. Uh, we don't take any shortcuts, really. Um, at least none I can really think of. I can't think of many things that we could do much better by by doing something very different. We just make sure that we do the things that are necessary for making good coffee um, in a very, very
1: efficient way. That's incredible. And I, th- I completely agree with you. I mean, a really good case in point would be we had our um, regional barista championships yesterday and about three or four weeks before the, the competition, they announced the format had changed. So instead of having 15 minutes to present three courses, we had only two judges, not four, but 10 minutes to present a set with three courses, including a signature drink. It is so different. And to actually impart enough information for it to be interesting and valuable as well as you know, carrying on your your service and delivering three tasty drinks, it's it's a staggering amount of work to get that done in that amount of time, and yet Fani and Lutle, who competed both used tools like the Paragon Chilling Rocks. They used the Barista Hustle Autocomb. They were using the NCD a puck press. They they didn't take any shortcuts, and they managed to both of them managed to finish in time. Um, yeah,
0: but that's because they're both are working baristas, you know, like we can talk about competitions later a little bit because I think we'll maybe have some differing opinions on part of that, but I find that really interesting. So first off, congrats on the performances yesterday. I saw the the Instagram post earlier and I thought, amazing, like those two deserves like every title they win down the line. It's amazing how how good these guys are doing. And I worked alongside Fani for a minute uh, at the lamazocco booth in Athens, right? You had me on bar together with Fani. And just working alongside that guy, I could feel like, I, that's what a barista should be, you know? Like, he's making coffee properly, but he's not looking down, focusing on every little thing. It's second nature. He, he holds eye contact with people. He talks to people. He answers questions about the coffee. He thanks everybody. He wishes everybody a good day. Like, it's a hospitality job. It's not, it's not a lab job, Running a specialty coffee shop should not be the same as running a lab. You should have like a lot of um, intent in how you brew your coffee, but I love little tools and things and and tweaks that we can do that enable us to have more eye contact with our customers that enable us to ask one more question you know it's not about getting them out of the door quicker. it's about like being more efficient in your interaction so you can take the time to answer their question and to to Ask them which one of the two coffees they want to to explain the coffee you have an offer to them because you don't then have to spend four minutes making their coffee but it's already already halfway done you know um, and properly trained staff um, that's yeah properly trained people with the right attitude. That's that's the recipe, really. So in terms of equipment, we use case fundevision machines, which are not the most technologically advanced machines. To be honest, um, they are beautifully stupid machines. They don't have computers, pressure profiling. They don't have many sensors here or there. They just do what they are supposed to do very well and very consistent. Um, and they're really pretty and slightly over-engineered. So we use those. Um, but to be honest, I don't think this press machine matters anywhere near as much as people think. We've had a linear La Bar for a while. Um, that was fine. We do caterings with the GS3. That's fine. I've worked in other coffee shops and other machines. Like I don't think coffee machines matter anywhere near as much as people think they do. In terms of grinders, we use what probably everybody else uses right now, the Mark grinders with the built-in scales, the grind-by-weight ones the e80 and the e65 and we just um have on bar a new thing that i actually spent 90 minutes fooling around with in athens and um really liked. we use the pour steady for filter coffees now um, yeah so i met a friend of mine um her name is mars and she used to work for 19 grams a roast in berlin that we sometimes work with she now works for boat coffee a roastery that we don't yet work with but might at some point, um, and she had some of her coffees there, and we spent one and a half hours just dialing in her coffees on that thing and together and tasting everything. And it was really, really impressive, like what that machine can do with very easy user interface and without much human interaction. Honestly, it brews better V60s than I brew at home with all the time in the world now. And it does it the same every time. And I have seventeen baristas working in two shops now, so to get consistent b sixties is is not easy when you have them brewed by hand right it's maybe maybe easier for you with two champion baristas behind bar, um, but uh, with seventeen different ones in two different shops, you want to look into automation at some point if you want to deliver a consistent result, and that thing just makes it much easier. so we just have that on bar. For the second month now and so far we're loving it in both cafes yeah i am a big believer in consistency i don't i don't want the first shop to do anything different than the second i spend a lot of time right now cycling back and forth between both shops and trying the house espresso and i get really annoyed when it's different i don't even really care about which one is better or if it's better here than there i don't celebrate that anywhere near as much as when it tastes the same between both shops because i really think that consistency is the main precursor for quality i don't think you can do anything well that you can't do consistently
1: yeah that's really interesting i actually had my first experience with being amazed at consistency in berlin and this might be a little bit controversial i don't think it should be but um you know i don't think everyone is a fan of the barn especially in the smaller um, specialty cafes i I heard a lot of people talking about how they've grown so big and all the rest of it but i intentionally went to five or six cafes and i ordered the same coffee in each cafe and the consistency was unbelievable i was really really impressed and that's uh, what a lot of people who work in one
0: coffee shop maybe don't see uh, how difficult that would be you know like it's running one coffee shop is a very different business than running two i can tell you after only two months
1: yeah absolutely i can't even imagine and i don't know if i want to find out to be honest with you one is more than enough for us with uh, the roastry and everything else that's going on and the irony is that um when you have people so invested in competition and in growth in the coffee industry, like Fani and Lutle, they quickly move on from being cafe baristas. Neither of them actually do any bar shifts anymore. So it's a bit of a, I know it's such a bummer. And I think a part of us is that in South Africa, the model is just so different. We can't, we can't charge four euros for a coffee here. Um, The market just won't pay it. So unfortunately our barista team simply can't be paid what you know our production roaster can be paid or our wholesale manager can be paid and i argue that the the work of the barista is just as important um but the the financial model just doesn't cater for it and i hope we can change that over time but at the moment that's just not the case so often the more successful competition baristas don't even work on bar, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, that,
0: that happens in a lot of countries, I think. Um, the, the cafe model or the specialty cafe model model is really interesting. Anyways, I don't know if you've read its brand new um, Maxwell Colonna Dashwood's book, The Business of Specialty Coffee.
1: I haven't, because to get one, I have to buy like 20 copies on wholesale. We can't even get them shipped to South Africa at the moment. <laughs> <Christ. So laughs> okay. I will read um, it as soon as I can get my hands on one.
0: Yeah. Um, so, um, but that's... Um, in there, um, he questions like whether specialty coffee or he doesn't like the term specialty coffee as most people don't anymore. These days we still use it, but we need to think of something new at some point, probably, but he calls it boutique coffee now, which I'm not sure is my favorite, um, alternative, but, um, the, the model of specialty coffee or boutique coffee shops is a bit weird because we, By far and large, we charge the same price as non-specialty shops, right? And we do that too. I actually raised my prices here just because when I went to the construction site of the second shop every day, one morning I went to a baker next door to get um, some pastries in the morning, and I saw their cappuccino from a full auto machine is more expensive than mine. Which is brewed from some of the most expensive coffee you can buy in the world, from some of the most well-trained baristas you will find anywhere, with like only with on one of the most expensive coffee machines you can find, and I charge less than they do, right? So that's when I decide, okay, probably time to raise prices a little bit. Um, so even though we can charge close to four euros for a cup of coffee here, um, I don't think four euros in Munich has the same buying power as it does um, elsewhere in the world. So, the model I think is the same. And my solution so far has been volume, to be honest. I think you just have to sell a certain number of drinks per day to make the coffee shop model remotely viable. Then everything gets a lot easier.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I've spoken to cafe, potential cafe owners um, through our wholesale program, you know, people who are interested in starting a cafe and they come to us looking for advice and for information. And I'm shocked at how far down the line they would be for example, they'd have a location lined up, they've looked into equipment prices, but they don't even know how many cups of coffee they need to sell per day to be to be viable and in their minds often the number is extremely low and their expectation is extremely high so they they think they only need to sell 40 cups a day to break even but they ex- estimate they're going to sell 400 and you look at the the area and you know the market there and it just it doesn't make sense it's a very it's a very difficult one to advise on and as you say it's, it's really... also very
0: difficult to predict if you don't have like first-hand experience in the field to be honest because before I opened my shop I like I said I worked in three different ones here in Munich and I wasn't sure how many cups I would be able to serve um, fortunately it's more than I thought I would um, and I honestly I get surprised month after month by new record Saturdays where I'd, our record day at Victor Imark, I think, is somewhere around 850 cups of coffee on a wow. space that seats six people. As just, like, I didn't think that would be technically possible. Um, that's 100 drinks an hour, right? That's that, well, is, like, that is staggering. I mean, <laughs>
1: yeah. I think that's one thing that Europe is quite used to is smaller spaces. I mean, our cafe, mm. the interior space of our cafe seats about 40 people or so. And we often mm. get comments about how we don't have enough seating. So can you yeah. imagine? You've got six. <laughs> no. No.
0: People don't expect to sit down at our shop, to be honest. And I think the people who do expect to sit down in a the cafe, they don't come to us, which is a bummer, but it's also okay. Like when we built the second shop on the second day, someone walked in and said, ah, oh, you would have had spaces for desks here, for tables, so people could work on their laptops. Why didn't you do that? And like, yeah, I don't mean to be an asshole, but it's quite intentional that you don't sit down with your laptop in my coffee shop because... There's co-working spaces, and they are struggling to make ends meet. So can you imagine how it would be if I let you sit down here for free with your laptop in a cafe? Exactly. And I'm guilty of this. I do it when I travel, but it's just not a functioning um, business model. You know, you can't have someone sit there for two hours and have one Americano. It just doesn't work. It doesn't pay the rent even, let alone staff
1: costs or whatever. Exactly, exactly. So you've recently had your, your first child. Um, mm. And I know we have had conversations around – the difficulty of work-life balance, and I can definitely relate with two kids of my own. Um, that was before the second shop. How, how is it going? How are you managing to, to jump Um Now the- it's going really well.
0: Now it's going really well. I'm not going to lie. The first few weeks of the second shop, or the construction side were really hard. Fortunately, my wife's parents came for a few days and helped out. My mom came in for a few days and helped out. Um, I was at home for the first two months when my daughter was born, and I'm really happy I was able to do that, but then I was offered this second location, and I talked to my wife and said, I can say no to this, but I really want to say yes, can we make this work somehow, and it's... um, It's such a big gamble because you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how the kid is going to react. You don't know how much your wife can support you in that. And it's just, I'm really happy that she's really strong and really pulled through and really held it together nicely. I'm really happy that my daughter happens to be one of the most chill babies I've ever encountered in my life. And yeah, everything worked out well. The construction site worked out well, even though it was a lot of work once again, because I'm just one of those people who has to do a lot themselves. I don't just contract people to build furniture. I go and build furniture. That's so um, cool. I love that. Yeah, but, but it all worked out. Um, it was hard. It was very long days, very short nights for two, three months. And some things had to give. um, But, yeah, now my daughter... Tomorrow my daughter is going to be exactly six months old. The shop is going to be exactly... um, is exactly two months old today, the second one. And now everything is kind of on its tracks, you know. Now everything's working as it should. And now I can kind of give back a little bit and stay home more and spend more time with my wife and kids.
1: That's lovely. Not that I
0: haven't been. It's just now I can
1: even more. Um, And, yeah,
0: now I'm a little less caught um, in doing things
1: here. A bit more flexible. I remember someone told me years ago that to get to achieve balance later on, you first have to get out of balance. And that's been such great advice for me. There are periods of your life where you have to be a little bit extreme in one direction to set yourself up for a better future. Yeah,
0: Yeah, I I really believe that. There's a, a metaphor. My dad said this once to me, and I'm not even sure it's true, but I think an electric engine can give like 10 times its rated performance for a short period of time. So if it's rated for whatever wattage, you can kind of demand more of it, up to 10 times more of it, but only for a short time. And I always viewed myself as an engine like that, where I'm like, I can do 10 times more than I should be doing, but only for a certain amount of time. So I always give myself certain timeframes where I know I'm just going to be very, very focused. I'm going to pour everything I have into something but I need to see the end of it, you know, and projects like these, like opening a second cafe are really neat like that because you see the progress, you can kind of see the timelines moving and you can have your progress bar basically in front of your eyes and see, okay, I'm at 72% now, which means two more weeks like this and then maybe another hard week or two, but then that's it. And then I can um, relax a little bit again until the next thing comes, you know, and I like working like that. I don't personally. I don't really like working the same amount of work every day. Uh, I like
1: working a lot
0: for a while, and then not so much for a while.
1: I love that. I love the analogy as well. I'm definitely going to use that. I hope you don't mind uh maybe we should look up if it's true actually because oh. i think my dad told me this like 20 years ago and i'm not even sure i remember it right
0: and then i'm not sure it's true but it's maybe we should a, look that it's up. it's
1: such a great analogy i don't think i want to know if it's true or not i'd rather just believe it and share it you know unfortunately <laughs> well, we didn't record on a podcast no we? fortunately not fortunately not <laughs> it's quite funny i'm busy planning um obviously there's a, a lot of green coffee planning at the moment and mm. um I was chatting to Diego Barona from um, Los Perinias, and mm. I, I said to him, Diego, just a reminder that I have you on record on our podcast saying that we're getting some SL28 this year, so don't, mm. don't try and pull a fast one on me, you know, and we've got, <laughs> we've got such a good friendship and relationship. He replied, he just said, don't worry, you're getting some SL28, and um, yeah, it's, it's actually pretty funny to have these moments recorded now and these great yes. conversations to look back on in years to come.
0: We are getting some of that, aren't we? Oh yes, oh yes. Let's Don't see. you worry. Don't you worry.
1: <laughs> it's quite We're funny. You into your
0: own trap here.
1: Yeah, exactly. Now, now I'm learning to my own trap, but I can edit it out. You see, so if I change my mind later, I can just, I can just take that out before mm-hmm. we air the podcast. But I won't. Um, yeah, we. It's it's fantastic. When I'm buying coffee at the moment, um, this this coming season, we have to up our volumes on our micro lots and our our special releases. Um, in fact, we have to up our volumes across the board. We've experienced some really nice growth over the last twelve months, which is great. Um, comes with its own challenges, but it's been it's been a net positive. But I'm really enjoying cupping samples and going, "Oh man, that's going to be amazing for for Marcus and his customers." <laughs> I just Lush. i have i have a sense of what your your customer base enjoys, and um, yeah, for example, our Kenyans. We're going to have to buy a lot more Kenyan coffee this year. We we sold out of our favorite lots very, very quickly. But it's been wonderful to be able to share these coffees with you guys.
0: Yeah, but that's fantastic to hear as well. And I've I've made a point of working more with roasters that I have a bit more of a personal relationship with. Because knowing that we as a small coffee shop here in Munich can have that impact on a coffee roaster, you know, and enable them to to do something like commit to certain lots of coffee that maybe they otherwise wouldn't buy, um, that is really cool to know that we can support you in that way as well. I think like, it, we are at the last end of the value chain and everything we can do to kind of give value back to ends, uh, to points in the value chain that come before us. Is a really cool thing to do,
1: and it is meaningful. I can tell you, it's been extremely valuable to us. Um, the feedback I've had from you on certain coffees, both positive and negative in certain cases, and the tweaks that we've made, fortunately, it's been more, much more positive than than anything else. But um, when I'm roasting your coffee, I'm definitely as focused as I ever am behind that machine because I know it's going to be going to a lot of very, very enthusiastic coffee consumers so there's there's, so that's a, there's also, a positive you've, you've pressure i have a really
0: good sport with all of that you know because i don't i don't type out these feedback emails like willy-nilly i don't i don't want to be a jerk when people send me coffee and I, like then they ask how's the coffee going down sometimes i have to say like this coffee isn't performing as well for this and that reason and some roses react really cool to that um i remember like when you first sent us samples two years ago I, initially we had a, a short like exchange of WhatsApp voice messages where I told you, I'm not sure we're going to be working with you because the roast style and this and that. And some of the coffees I didn't really like that much, but this one was a banger. Um, and then you, you kind of got back to me saying, hey, I really understand all of that. It's really interesting to hear. Um, if I can send you samples again, that'd be cool. And then you sent me another round of samples and they were all really good. And ever since then, we've been working together. And a lot of roasts, when I, I say something like that, they're just like, ah, uh, they blame the water or the barista or whatever. And they're like, our coffee's good. You just don't know what you're doing. And they move on to the next potential client, you know, and they give up on it. And that's fine too. But you kind of took it more of a challenge. You took the feedback really seriously. And honestly, like everything you've sent us in the last two years has just been spectacular ever since then.
1: Oh, man. I really appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks for that feedback. And I think our coffee program in the second half of 2023 and now heading into 2024 is definitely better than it's ever been um in the previous episode we recorded as a team it was Fani, Luhle and myself we were just talking about our favorite mm. coffees at the moment and I'm actually just about to put out an Instagram post about yesterday's results and the truth is that we had a seriously hard time choosing competition coffees this year because yeah. we, had yeah, a, yeah. we had a dozen coffees we could have had the same results with in my opinion And um, to be at that point as a small roastery in South Africa is such a big deal. And it's been five years of really, really hard work developing relationships from a distance with producers, getting to them to the point where they actually trust us enough to send us coffee. Um, You know, Lost Origin would probably be the best example of that, where they produced so little coffee in their first year in business in Panama that they sent us two five kilo lots. And Andy told me that we were, I think, the only roastery they sold coffee to who hadn't physically been there to visit them in Panama. So to have that level of trust is, is just incredible. Yeah,
0: Um, how's the stronghold um, in that because you couldn't be doing that stuff without that little roaster, right?
1: Absolutely. And I think this competition cycle has been testament to the power of a tool like the stronghold. It's certainly, yeah. I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's a silver bullet for quality. Um, I've probably had more misroasts roasts on the stronghold than I've had on any drum roaster in the past. But, yeah, but then the 800 gram mist roast, It's an 800 gram mistros. Know, 800 like gram mistros. Exactly. <laughs> I've been halfway through a batch and ejected it because I knew it was going to be terrible. And right. I would never do that on a big drum roaster, you know. You try and recover the batch as best you can and maybe drink it at home if necessary. But um, yeah. on the stronghold, you know, for example, Fani's Coffee is a naturally processed geisha from Jansen Coffee and they only had mm. 12 kilos of this particular lot to sell us. And on the Genio, if I roasted down to our minimum, minimum batch size of four kilos, we would have had three attempts. And the intention is to use it for both the regional round and finals, which wouldn't have been possible without the stronghold. So we took, I think, six or seven attempts at the coffee and batch three and four, for example, were the two best batches. Um, And we blended those and used those for, for competition. So on the competition front, the stronghold has been amazing and being able to roast specifically for espresso using the halogen, the halogen um, power a little bit differently to what I do for some of our filter coffees, um, it's, it's been a really great opportunity for me to expand my knowledge and test new things, essentially. Yeah, man. I mean, just the small batch sizes and consistency with small
0: batch sizes is such a game changer that these machines exist now, these smaller roasters that allow you to do that. Um, yeah, it's fantastic. And I I love that the competition format or the the world of competition enables you to to push in that direction. And that's what I love competitions for. Um, I don't like whenever I think about sending baristas to competitions or maybe competing myself, I just get turned off immediately by all the formats and all the rules around them and all the kind of politics around them. And honestly, the SCA itself, I'm not the biggest fan of probably. Um, but then I hear stories from roses like you growing so much and baristas like Fani growing so much because they are competing and it makes me think about it again. So I'm really torn. Like I'm, I'm, I don't know what to think about it honestly. There's so many people I respect so much who are really into competitions, but somehow it doesn't, doesn't speak to me personally.
1: It's really interesting because I personally don't compete and mm. I have no intention of competing but I see the value in competition. And, you know, I always say to people who ask me why I don't compete, and I, I always say to them, I compete every single day in the marketplace yeah. as a business owner. And when people buy our coffee and when we grow as a company, it means we're winning. And that's the competition stress that I carry every day. And that's the competition anxiety I deal with every day. Um, I don't need to add, you know, a 15-minute barista set to that. Um, yeah. I don't want to rehearse a PowerPoint presentation, (laughs) you know. Exactly, exactly. And my chat with Sam Cora the other day was fantastic because he just gave me a different perspective. And he just said at the time that they were really into competition as a team, there was no other way to get feedback. There were no books on roasting. There were no books on brewing. It was was competition or nothing. So they would roast a batch of coffee, take it to competition, get positive or or negative feedback, go back to the drawing board and try again. And I think that's, you know kind of what we've done as well the coffees we used yesterday were the best um, coffees we've ever taken to competition they were better developed they were more soluble they cut through the milk better than we've ever you know experienced before and yet all the positive floral fruity characteristics in the espresso were still present and I think I wouldn't have pushed myself as a roaster to find a way to make that happen without competition Mm. even though I'm not competing myself yeah.
0: Yeah. In terms of making the whole team work together as well and like establishing regular feedback cycles, it's also probably a good thing because I imagine you had like a re- project group, like the three of you roasting coffee, trying it in the different competition drinks and recipes, and then, you know, a lot of feedback cycles and a lot of improvement all around. Probably everybody got better at their job for it. So that's big value in competition for sure.
1: Absolutely. I would agree with that. The big difference, though, for us as a team is we don't have. 800 drinks a day going out of our shop. Um we we're in a in a quieter area. Our focus is the the production side of the business and we do have we can create time in our schedules to practice. But yeah. when you've got a team of 17 baristas running two cafes, to find time to first of all have a training space, you you would have Sundays, you know, to to clear yeah. the cafe and work on yeah, your Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. And, that's um, what we do exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, it's a completely different scenario and I don't I don't think that competition is right for everybody. I think that you do have to have an appetite for humoring the, you know, bureaucratic sort of side of it um, and dealing with the changes that get made at the last minute. Um, and then, for example, the oat milk and the latte art championships in Germany, I mean, what a bizarre decision. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the competitors have to now switch it up, deal with it and and try get the best results. Do you know they how they're gonna
0: solve that with the full auto machine now? Because I just saw that they're using the full auto machine for latte art competition now. But how would they do that if someone wants to compete with that. oat milk?
1: That that's a great question. But I think in the German Latte art championships, I'm not sure about world championships, they don't have a choice. It's one brand of oat milk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um yeah, yeah. that's the sponsor. And the brand yeah. of oat milk isn't readily available either, I believe. So it is a biz- bizarre decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, the the whole kind of interaction with competition formats and sponsors is is not doing the format any good. It's not going to make us um, dip our feet into competing anytime soon, for
1: sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the one thing that competition does do for us, or may- maybe it's maybe it's not the case, but we have these amazing events that happen all over the world, the World of Coffee events, and. I think maybe the competition tags on to the industry events more than the other way around. But they do take us to cool places, and yeah. we're hoping to be in Copenhagen later this year. And um, if you guys would have us, I think it would be cool to extend and come through to Munich and maybe um, share some of our ideas with, with some of your, your customers. I was about to ask you that and get you on record about exactly <laughs> that as well. First, are you going to be
0: in Copenhagen? If, if so, do you want to do a stopover in Munich? Because we do these meet-the-roaster events. Um, we just did one last night with Uncommon from Amsterdam. Uh, Josh Cotton was here, the, the owner and head roaster from there. And he presented his coffees. And they're really cool events. Like the Munich Coffee scene is bonk going mad for it. We, we usually limit it to 30 people. We do free tickets, but you have to sign up. And it's usually booked out within like three, four hours or something. And last night as well, we had three, uh, 30 people in the shop. We brewed six coffees. And he presented them, talked about them, talked about the roastery and the company and got feedback on his coffees. It was a discussion there. It was a really fun event. And I thought, hey, if I can get you to do a stopover in Munich on your way to Copenhagen or the way back, I'd love to do that with you here.
1: Oh man, I'm so keen. We'll definitely talk details, but I've had that in my mind since we, we met up in, in, in Athens. Nice. And um, yeah, we, we I think Cup Tasters might be happening in, in Copenhagen. And mm. funny at the last minute decided to enter cup tasters for fun. He didn't run one practice set. We didn't do a single triangulation (laughs) and he finished second. Yeah, exactly. Such a gangster. He's such a gangster. He was bantering the whole way through the set. It was really, really funny. Um, and yeah, he ended up he ended up doing pretty well. He finished second, and he's competing at nationals. And when he entered the regional event, we all laughed and said, "Watch, you're going to get through to nationals, and then you're going to win nationals, and then you're going to have to compete on the world stage, and we'll stand there laughing at you." And that's probably a very unfair <laughs> thing to say to him. But when you see the cup tasters event happen in person, it is just so fast and so intimidating. Yeah, but Fani's yeah. got that killer instinct, so he'll actually be fine, I think. Um, yeah,
0: I mean. If, if anyone's going to do it like that, he is. Yeah. He, he's
1: going to do it. And now I've realized that it's in Copenhagen. So if he wins nationals, Skaza, our, our local SCA, will actually pay for him to go. So he saves me the cost of a, of a flight, which is fantastic. So <laughs> I've told him now, now we have to start tri- doing triangulation practice. It's going to be great.
0: Yeah, that's the one competition format that maybe, maybe I can get someone from my team to to enter into at some point, yeah.
1: I think it's very cool you know you don't have to prepare mega sets and tasting coffee and being able to you know to have the skill set that you need to do well in cup tastes is something that's valuable to a cafe or a roastery so I think it's a I think it's a good one yeah so Marcus this podcast is named Coffee Made Me Do It and it definitely does seem that in your journey you have been driven by a love for coffee and you know earlier you said that at the end of a long Sunday shift you would still be pulling an espresso again if you had to um if it didn't if it didn't extract correctly i mean for me certainly the love of the product has been what has sustained me in building bluebird and it sounds like it's been the same for you absolutely I, like i
0: sometimes hear that climate change is going to end coffee or whatever and uh, if that happens then this shop's going to close its doors because the variety and the quality in coffee is what what keeps me coming back every day. Like before, I recorded this podcast with you. I just was tinkering around with the poor steady, trying to optimize the recipe even further, and I just love it. I just this is such a fascinating drink. I'm four and a half years into this business now, and fifteen years into coffee. Um, and yeah, it doesn't get boring. It surprises me every week.
1: It's that's incredible. Do you do you have one? coffee drinking experience that stands out for you. not necessarily the best coffee ever, but the most impactful coffee you've ever you've ever tasted.
0: I have two and both of them were in London. So the first was um, when I got into coffee first, it was at Nude espresso, um, a coffee shop that still exists. it's in London. And the barista there was really nice, and she made me a uh, flat white with the Ethiopian natural. And I just started asking questions because I was just so enchanted by it. And she I don't know if she would, really took her time answering all my questions, even though they were really basic and stupid and beginner. And there was no snobbery about it and just really approachable, friendly answer to my questions. And I kept coming back every day. And then three, four weeks later, she came in with an orange Intelligentsia bag full of samples that she had gotten back from SCA Expo in, I don't know, the US somewhere. She went to the US to Coffee Expo and brought me back samples from, um, it was Blue Bottles, Stumptown, Intelligentsia, and one heart back then, right? And back then, those were like the indie specialty roasters. Today, they're massive conglomerates owned by Nestle and JAB and whoever else, but Back then, those were the indie guys. And I had an electric Bialetti and a Sassenhaus hand grinder. And I would brew those coffees in there. And they were all horrible by today's standards. But that's when I first got into tinkering with coffee and realizing how different it can taste. And I remember that time in my flat in London. It's when I first started messing with coffee. And that I will remember forever that kind of curiosity that that uh, was sparked then by one barista who just took her time answering my question. Her name is Sasha. Shout out. She now runs a roastery in Australia. It's called Fat Poppy Coffee Roasters. If you're in Australia, make sure to find them. Um, she definitely changed my life without knowing it. And the second is when I was more of a full-time coffee snob already and thought I knew everything and I thought I knew how to dial in espresso but personally i didn't like it really <laughs> and i just drank filter coffee and then i went to formative coffee in london uh, it's run by ian kissick a guy who's the uk barista champion and just yeah all around legend and he had the same coffee on espresso and filter always he always had two coffees coffee a and coffee b and both of them would be on espresso and on batch brew and he would do like sets where you can get coffee a as espresso as milk drink and as batch brew or something and coffee b as well And I ordered one of those sets and I ordered the espresso again afterwards because it was just so delicious. It was by far the best espresso I've had ever in my life. And I started asking a bunch of questions about water and brew recipes and how they do it and went back home and started from scratch learning how to dial an espresso because
1: I thought I knew, but I didn't know anything then. Wow, that's incredible. I think, you know, it's just such a fun journey to be on with people who – love this coffee industry as much as i do and i really appreciate the friendship and the support marcus it means a huge amount to me oh likewise thank you man i can't wait to hang out in person again um hopefully we'll find some cold beers in copenhagen and and munich
0: yeah, please let's make Munich work. We'll give you the shop for a week if you want to run Bluebird
1: in Munich for a week or something. I we'll do whatever you want. I want to have you. Well, here. now now you're on record as well. So. <laughs> 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 we'll be there, man. I'm I'm so looking forward to it. Um, it's a, it's a dream. It's a dream to be to be there with you and just to be in your in your shops and, yeah, share our story in in Munich. So I'm looking forward to that and. Yeah, just to wrap up the podcast today, I want to just thank you for your time. I know you've got a young child and your wife at home and it's a Sunday afternoon in a closed shop when you're supposed to be taking time off. So thanks for, for making the effort today. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, likewise.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, Marcus. I'll be sending you coffee in about 10 days from now, which is exciting. Yes. And two, two more gems, I believe. <laughs> yes. Amazing. All right, Marcus. Thank you, man. Have a good evening. You too. Chat soon,
0: Dario. Thank Ciao. you for having me absolute pleasure bye bye. i hope
1: you enjoyed this episode of the coffee made me do it podcast we are going to be back in two weeks time with a new episode and again so grateful to marcus for his time i had a great time chatting can't wait to meet up somewhere in the world again hopefully spend some time in his cafes in munich in june and we'll see you in the next one enjoy ciao